today we're looking at the verses that we read together, verses 11 through 16, and we're going to focus our attention mainly today on um, verse 14. But as, as I've been doing, just let me remind you of the background of uh, what we read here. Uh, Paul is telling the story of his own uh, personal relationship and experience with the apostles in Jerusalem, the chief apostles, uh, James, Peter, and John. And he's doing that because uh, he's been accused by these, these false teachers, these legalists that have come and influenced the Galatians. He's been accused of not uh, being a real apostle. And they've suggested that, you know, he, Paul's really not an apostle and therefore his gospel is invalid and you shouldn't listen to anything he has to say. So uh, he's just setting the record straight and he's walking the Galatians through his own personal history with uh, these men in Jerusalem that are seen as the, the leaders of the church. And so uh, he says three years after his conversion uh, was his first uh, meeting, personal meeting with uh, Peter he had gone up to Jerusalem after three years and he met with Peter. He said he spent 15 days with Peter. And then he said that it was 14 years later that he took his second trip to Jerusalem and met not only with Peter, but he also met with James and with John and with the, the leaders there in the church. And he says that they extended to him and to Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They acknowledged his apostolic ministry. And now here in the verses that we read, he tells another very interesting story. And this story is fascinating. And I would imagine even today, there are many, many Christians around the world who don't even know this story. They don't know that there was a confrontation between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. But that's exactly what Paul tells us about here. And many of them perhaps wouldn't know it because not every uh, Christian or not every church or not every denomination really emphasizes, you know, the, the teaching of the scripture, which is unfortunate. But, um, you know, people would just kind of know maybe a more general history coming from the book of Acts. And although the book of Acts is a great history of the early church, it's not complete. It doesn't give you every detail of the things that transpired. So here in Galatians, we get a little more insight into some of the things that occurred. And this, this particular uh, event where these two apostles, these two men that were equally called by God, uh, yet they had a dispute. They had a public uh, confrontation with one another. And so in that uh, confrontation, there are things that, we are meant to learn, uh, they were meant to learn certain things at the time, but principles and truths that uh, I think were intended for us throughout the whole age of the church. So we want to look and see what uh, those things are uh, for us today as we walk back through this story. So verses uh, 11 through 16, I'm just going to walk through them again, uh, make a few comments, and then we're going to come back and uh, camp out on verse 14. So 
He says, now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Now, let me just add a comment here on Antioch. So Antioch was in Syria and not too far from Jerusalem geographically, uh, but Antioch in, in many senses became kind of the new center uh, of gospel ministry. You see, although everything began in Jerusalem, what happened is in Jerusalem, they got bogged down with all of this um, Jewish stuff. They got bogged down with uh, the legalism and everything. And they, in, in a sense, they, they kind of lost um, the, the big picture of what God wanted to do. But it was in Antioch that that pure gospel was retained, especially through the ministry of Paul, and much of the evangelism of the world and, and much of the church planting that went on in the future took place from Antioch. So at this particular point, Paul tells us that Peter came to Antioch, but there he said he withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, and James Maybe you remember he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's the half-brother of Jesus. Before these certain men came from James, Peter would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So here's a pretty astounding thing. Peter, who, remember, I mean, Peter's like one of the key leaders in the church. Peter's the guy who, on the day of Pentecost, he's the one that the Lord had uh, gifted and, and used extraordinarily to preach the gospel there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And those 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. Later on, Peter was the one who first took the gospel to the Gentiles. He went to the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and he brought the gospel to them there. And he, he realized that God showed personal favoritism to no person or to no nationality or to no ethnicity. There, Peter understood that the gospel was for everyone. This, this is the same guy who now is being intimidated by this band that has come down from James in Jerusalem. And because of their presence, Peter backs off from his fellowship with these Gentiles, with these non-Jewish believers. And Paul says, even Barnabas. And Barnabas was another great man. He was another one of the apostolic team. He was instrumental in... Um, bringing Paul into the ministry in a sense. He brought Paul in and, and introduced him and talked about the, the, the way the Lord had been using him. And so, you know, both of these men, you would never expect that this is the kind of thing that they would fall prey to, but they did. Peter and Barnabas spoke. But then Paul said, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew 
live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. This was the mentality among the Jews. Uh, Paul's just repeating that. He said, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we Jews have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. Thank God for Paul. Thank God that Paul was the courageous one. Now, going back to Peter for a moment, um, it, it tells us specifically that it was fearing those who were of the circumcision. So there was that weakness in Peter. And if we go back in his history, we see that there were other times when this kind of thing took place. Maybe you remember back in the gospel accounts where uh, after Jesus had been arrested and Peter was there sort of on the uh, sidelines watching things, and he was questioned three times whether or not he knew Jesus, whether or not he was one of his disciples. And remember, three times Peter had said, no, I, I don't know him. He denied the Lord. So Peter had that uh, tendency to sort of uh, buckle under pressure and, and give in uh, to this kind of intimidation. And we see that with him here. And then even Barnabas, as wonderful as he was, he seemed to have a similar kind of thing where he gets carried away with this. But like I said, thank God for Paul who had sort of a forehead of flint and you know, he just wasn't gonna allow for it. But, but as I mentioned previously, maybe you remember in our, in our last study, I talked about, you know, Paul, you see, Paul knew these guys like Peter and, and Barnabas and the others wouldn't necessarily know them because Paul was one of them previously. He knew that if you gave them an inch, they would take a mile. He knew that if you allowed for any kind of compromise when it comes to this, this issue of um, everybody being equal before God, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. He knew that if, if there was any allowance for this kind of discrimination to take place, it would ruin everything that God wanted to do. So the Lord raises up Paul, really. And here he contends with them. And in doing so, he really maintains the truth of the gospel for successive generations. So all of us owe Paul uh, a huge thanks. When we get to heaven and see him, we can thank him that he was willing to put things on the line uh, to preserve the purity of the gospel. So that's, that's kind of the background. So verse 14, that's where I want to focus today, as I said. And I just, I just want to focus on this one phrase where Paul makes reference to the truth of the gospel. He says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel... Now, if I were to say to you today, I wanna, I wanna talk to you about the truth of the gospel. There are many aspects uh, of that that I could talk to you about, but the one that I wanna specifically talk about and the one that I think the text deals with is this aspect. Equality is a truth of the gospel. Equality. You see, God has made it clear that 
he is no respecter of persons. Or in other words, he doesn't show partiality. There's not one nation that he prefers over another nation. There's not you know, one people that he prefers over another people. But that before him, everyone is equal. So the, the truth of the gospel is that prejudice and inequality are overruled by the gospel. So wherever the gospel goes, it ought to destroy prejudice and inequality. You maybe heard this saying before, and this is what we're talking about. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, meaning that everybody stands equal at the foot of the cross. Now, of course, that's not true in society in general, is it? I mean, there's all kinds of division in our culture. And the divisions exist over these same kinds of things. Sometimes it's divisions over, over race. Sometimes it's divisions over uh, class, if you will, social standing. Sometimes it's divisions between uh, the genders and so forth. These things are very real problems in our world. They're problems. They were problems then. They're, they're still problems today. But the truth of the gospel is that Jews and Gentiles, and, and the word Gentile, now here in the text, Greek is used, uh, or they're talking about um, the, the Jews and the Greeks, but the Greeks and the Gentiles are kind of synonymous. And it just means everybody who's not a Jew. That's the idea. So all of the nations, the, the word Gentile uh, comes from the Hebrew word goyim uh, back in the Old Testament. And goyim just means the nations collectively, everybody outside of Israel. So what the gospel teaches is that Jews and Gentiles are equally lost. And when saved by grace, they stand on equal ground before God. Now, here's an important point. Peter knew this. It wasn't like Peter had forgotten this. Well, that wasn't the issue. You see, Peter knew this, but he was intimidated by the legalist in Jerusalem and he compromised. So Peter compromised with what he knew to be not the case. He knew that there was no distinction. He himself was the one who brought the, the gospel to the Gentiles initially, but He's, he's so intimidated and he's so sort of self-preserving at this point that he allows the compromise to take place. But like I said a moment ago, Paul knew that this could not go uncontested without the gospel suffering a huge setback. If Paul would not have contested this, then you know what would have happened? Uh, Christianity would have just have been seen as another sect of Judaism, and it would have had a very limited appeal only to those Gentiles who wanted to become second-class citizens within another sect of Judaism. Paul saw that. He could, he could see far enough down the road to know that that's where it would go. Peter was too preoccupied with preserving his own uh, reputation back in Jerusalem among the leaders but, you know, the more I've, I've studied Galatians recently, the more I have seen clearly how the, the Jerusalem church really was compromised. And that might explain why it wasn't all that long into the history of the church that the Jerusalem church became 
uh, just sort of ineffective. It just sort of faded off the scene as having any real impact because it, it just became very much an, uh, an introspective, just very uh, exclusive kind of a thing that, that was more concerned about making sure we maintained good relationships with the Jews than getting the gospel out to the world. And as I said earlier, Antioch sort of became the place. Now, Paul, like I said, his background was in all of this. He was a Pharisee, as he's told us uh, on a number of occasions in the New Testament. So he pushes back against it. Thank God for the boldness of the apostle. But as he goes on in this epistle to the Galatians, as he gets further into it, he continues to address some of these themes. I mean, of course, he's just getting started. He's telling us the historical narrative, then he's gonna get into the, the teaching part of it in the third chapter. But I wanna focus on uh, something he said in chapter three, and it's in verse 28. But I'm gonna read from verse 27. So 3, 27 and 28, and this is what it says. Paul is writing, he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and now listen, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. So look at those categories there. Jew or Greek, or as I said, Gentile. Jew or Gentile, bond or free, slave or free, male or female. We're talking race, we're talking class, we're talking gender. Isn't it interesting how the Bible is relevant always? Because aren't those some of the hot topics in the culture today? They certainly are. This is, this is where our culture's at. We're all divided up culturally over these very issues, the issues of race, the issues of, of class in a sense, even though uh, we haven't been a, a, a society that's been built on a class system like others have, European cultures especially, um, and uh, other Asian cultures. Uh, we, we haven't been that, but of course we do have strong social divides. So we've got the race issue, we've got the social issue, and then we obviously have the gender issue. And in this season, this particular season that we're in, all of these things are so fresh in the minds of so many people because these were many of the things that were sort of uh, being focused on during the, the recent um, election process, weren't they? And they're, you know, candidates pitting them, you know, one against the other, uh, you know, oh, this person's a racist and this person's a, a, se a, a sexist and, uh, you know, and, the, you know, they're, they're for the, you know, the 1% and, and then, you know, the other side of this, but it's, it's all these same things. So, Here's what we need to take away from that. What we need to take away is that this is a golden opportunity, as I've said before, this is a golden opportunity for the church to stand up and say, hey, listen, this is how you do it right here. This is how you do race. This is how you do class. This is how you do gender. We should be the ones who are setting forth a model. Now, of course, we can't force the outside culture to adopt 
our understanding of these things, but what we can do is we can give them an example that they can look to, and hopefully, as we give them the right example, people will be drawn to it. Of course, the, the world is always gonna be like this to some degree, isn't it? Because people are sinful, and people are selfish, and people are, uh, by nature, inclined toward racism and classism and genderism and all that. That's just the human heart. So in some ways, that's never gonna change until God sets the world right when Jesus returns. But we must remember that the church, we are to be entirely different. We are to be counterculture, as Kathy was talking about the the new book that we've just come out with on uh, following Christ in the modern world. What, you know, one of the things I'm talking about there early on is how Jesus intended us to be counterculture. He intended us to be uh, different from the culture. And so the culture ought to be able to look at the church and say, you know, they're doing, they're doing something good there. They're, that, that's right. That's the way it should be. So we have to make sure that we are living this out ourselves. Can't force the world into it, but we can certainly offer them um, an option by the way we do things. So let's just talk about these three things for a moment within the context of the church. Race. And I'm just gonna make it real simple. Our churches should be racially integrated, reflecting the communities that we live in. That, that's just the simple truth. There, the day that there was segregation in the church based upon race was a sad, sad day in history. And of course, that's exactly what was kind of brewing under the surface here with this controversy in Antioch that Paul describes. I mean, it was, it was a religious controversy, but it was also a bit of a racial controversy because, of course, the Jews did see themselves as just a notch above the Gentiles. They were just a better stock. That was their perspective. And it was so ingrained in them that even the Christians who had the Jewish background, they had a hard time letting go of that. So... This should have never been the case. And Paul really, like I said, he pushed back against it. He, in a sense, he put it to rest and it should have stayed down. But it seems like, you know, every generation that comes along, we have these same kinds of issues we have to deal with. So our churches should be racially integrated, reflecting the communities that we are in. So as we look at the surrounding community that we're in, we ought to be able to look around the congregation of our churches and see that, yeah, the church is, is pretty reflective of the community that we live in. And, you know, quite frankly, I'm thankful that that is the case as I look out at our congregation. I'm, I'm thankful for that diversity. I think there's a good blend of just what our uh, community looks like. You know, we have... Uh, a very large um, Latino population right here in our city because, you know, we are technically, right, literally, we are in Santa Ana, even though we're called Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. Now, some people say, well, right there, that's a problem. You know, why are you calling yourself Costa Mesa when you're really in Santa Ana? <laughs> well, because we started in Costa Mesa and we're incorporated in Costa Mesa in 1961. So, you know, we just have never thought to change. But, but we are in... Santa Ana. 
So having a, 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 a very large Latino population in Santa Ana, one of the largest in the country, if we were a church that had no uh, influence from that culture, or, or, or we looked out in our congregation, we saw that, well, there really aren't any people with uh, a Latin background here among us, and we were, uh, j- you know, just a group of, you know, white people that came from over, you know, that side of the freeway, that would be a problem. It would be a problem. It really would. And we would have to ask ourselves, why, why is that the case? But, like I said, we, we don't have that problem, thank God. Because we were taking the gospel seriously. And, you know, if we, if we just take the gospel seriously, we don't even have to come up with some strategic plan to do it. If we just take the gospel seriously, if we take God's word seriously, if we're faithful to it, it will just naturally happen. When I was pastoring in London years ago, we had a very uh, diverse congregation um, ethnically. And it, it caught the attention of some of the local leaders in London. And I remember one day, one of them asking me the question. They said, well, you know, how have you done this? What was your strategy to develop a multi-ethnic church? And I said, well, my strategy was we're going to preach and teach God's word and we're going to open the doors to anyone who wants to come and hear it. That's how we did it. And, and, and that's, how, that's how you do it. Because if you preach and teach the word of God as it is clearly declared on the pages of our Bible, it's going to lend itself to this kind of diversity. It's going to, um, it's going to overrule any racist mentality. That's just what it does. The gospel, as I said a moment ago, the gospel overrules this. And so that is race. Our churches need to be racially integrated, reflecting our community. Secondly, class. Now, like I said, you know, we, we don't have so much of a class system in, in our country. But again, our churches should be diverse socially and economically reflecting our communities. So now, you know, again, sometimes there, you know, there are churches that are very much geared toward and, and cater to and, and even, you know, try to reel in sort of the rich and the famous. That's the identity that they want to have. And although they wouldn't put a sign on the door and say, you know, you can't come in unless your um, annual income is, you know, a certain amount, they would never do anything like that. Uh, yet, you know, they, you'd sort of, if you came in and you weren't sort of in that social category, you, you probably wouldn't feel all that accepted. Th- those things happen. That, sh- that should never happen. I had a conversation yesterday with a, a pastor. I just met him. I, I'd, I'd known a little bit about him, but I just met him. And he's pastoring a, a small church um, up in the mountains. I was up there yesterday. And uh, he came from one of the you know, local churches in the region, a very prominent church in the region. And he told me that he was on staff for 26 years at the church. And he said for 11 of those years, before going off to pastor this church, he said that he was a, a, an assistant pastor at the church. So he'd been on staff for 26 years, but he was a pastor for 11. And then he said, and you know, for the previous years, I was the janitor at the church. And I thought, awesome. That's the way you do it. The janitor becomes a pastor. That means you got this right. That, that's, how, that's how it's supposed to happen. Now, again, that doesn't happen everywhere. The janitor in some places is the janitor. 
always going to be the janitor because, you know, the janitors are down here and they, they, can, they can never, you know, make their way up. That's the kind of thing that the gospel just completely tramples under its feet. No, that is not to be the case. So our churches should be diverse socially and economically reflect reflecting our community. So in, in our church, as we look around the area, we're going to have that kind of diversity. We should. And we do. Thank God that we do. And then thirdly, gender. Our churches should be places where both men and women can flourish in their God-given callings. And of course, all of this is the, the way it should be. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. I think of, um, well, I'll just talk about our, our staff. We have a, a really diverse staff in all of the ways just mentioned. Um, but I'll tell you, I just enjoy so much some of the uh, ladies that are on our staff. And I appreciate so much their amazing giftings. And I, I might have shared this before, but a while back, um, I had a, a picture taken of me with uh, five young ladies that we all, they were all part of our uh, team in the outreaches in the UK, Creation Fest. And I just had a, an Instagram where I was sort of boasting about them. And a friend of mine uh, wrote back and said, you're, you're just like General Booth, who said all of his best men were women. And uh, <laughs> I said, well, you know, there's some truth to it in this case right here. So... So these, these are the, this is the church. So even though outside you got racial tension and all of that, you got class warfare, you've got uh, you know, the, the gender battles and so forth, the church is a different place. And this is the place where we've got to get it right. Because if we don't get it right, the world's never going to get it right. If we get it right, there's a, there's a small chance that you know, maybe we can have an impact. But even if we can't totally have an impact out there in that the culture is going to just look at us and take, take their lead from us, you know, there will be people in the culture who recognize this is a hopeless situation here. I'm, I'm going to go join this over here and be part of this thing, this, this new um, thing that God is doing called the church where you have this equality because Equality is a truth of the gospel. Now, I want to take it to a, a little bit of a different um, application as we kind of wind things down here. And at the end of verse 28 of chapter 3 that we read a moment ago, remember Paul said there, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, this is also... an a unity issue. And had the Jerusalem prejudice prevailed, the unity of the church would have been forever lost. There would have been no possibility of unity. You see, the Gentiles would have always been considered second-class citizens behind the Jews, and you could never have a true unity had that prejudice prevailed. Now, Here's where I want to bring the application a little more home to us. We, you know, setting aside the race, the class, the gender thing, but just, just thinking about it in terms of, of just the, the church. 
You see, we must strongly resist the temptation to see ourselves as in any way superior to other believers. This is where we can get into a problem today. Now, again, this, this is what was going on in um, Antioch as well. This is what was being stirred up in uh, the Galatian churches, that there was like a spiritual hierarchy. There was a spiritual uh, superiority. The, the Jews of Paul's day, many of them, the believing Jews even, they, they suffered from a superiority complex. They kind of just felt themselves just a little, just a little bit better than the other Christians, particularly the Gentiles. And so we have to resist that temptation. We have to resist the temptation to see our church or our family of churches as special or unique above the rest of the church. You see, this is always gonna create a problem. If we have this mentality, if we have this somewhere you know, back in our minds or if we have this somewhere in our heart that we are just a, sort of a notch above everybody else, this is going to foster division, destroy unity, and it will cause contention. You know, sometimes I hear leaders talking about, uh, you know, the particular movement that they're part of, and they, they use terms like, well, you know, we have a unique place in the body of Christ. And even though they don't want to come out and say it, you know what they're really saying? It's like, you know, we're just kind of a notch above. We're just kind of a little more special. That's a delusion. We're all Christians. And we're all part of one universal family. And, and the church is God's church. And God uses different churches at different times and different uh, movements and so forth. And, you know, we, we have to recognize we're, we're not the bee's knees. We're not the only thing that there is, you know. But we, we, can, we can get caught up in this. You know, ironically, I don't know if you've been paying attention to... Um, the Word for Today broadcast, but I was in my car the other morning and I noticed Pastor Chuck in, in the recordings, teaching through Galatians in the uh, Word for Today broadcast right now. And I remember him teaching this over the years, but the other day I heard it fresh uh, where he talked about the different expressions, the different denominations, and he kind of just walked through a number of them talking about how you know, each of them had a, you know, kind of a particular person that they really would be uh, the place where that, that kind of person would connect. And he talked about the more charismatic Pentecostal kinds of churches that, you know, they connect with a more emotionally sensitive person. And he talked about the more liturgical types of churches, you know, how they, they connect with a certain kind of person. They... Um, you know, there are, there are people that just don't necessarily connect with the, the way we do things exactly. And of course, the beauty of what he was saying was that, you know, God has raised up all of these for this very purpose of reaching as many people as possible because not everybody's gonna respond to the same way things are presented. The message stays the same, but the presentation is oftentimes different. Some of you might remember the name Dr. A.E. Wildersmith. Dr. A.E. Wildersmith was around here many 
times years ago. And uh, Dr. Wilder Smith was one of the most brilliant men of the 20th century. He was an absolute genius. I think he had like eight earned PhDs or something. And, uh, you know, just absolutely loved the Lord. And he would come and speak at our churches. And I remember when he would come to speak at Calvary Chapel Vista when I was pastoring there. And we would bring him in and he would sit on the front row and we'd have our worship band up here. And he would almost plug his ears through the whole thing and just had a frown on his face. And then he would always lecture me afterward about how that noise just, this was not right, you know. And where he came from, he was kind of a, you know, an Anglican background. He liked more of just a solemn, you know, he just wanted to sit. His idea of worship was just to just sit there and kind of think about, you know, with some incense and some, you know, hymns in the background. Uh, So he just did not like the way we did things at all. But of course, he loved us, so he would come and speak at our churches and he would tolerate that part of it. So the point is, we got to get rid of this idea that somehow, you know, we're, we're better than others, or we, we're just a notch above, or we, you know, we have this unique role. We, we don't. God, God uses all of us in, in different ways. And, you know, I discovered something years ago reading through biographies. I like to read biographies on great preachers and movements, and I like to read church history and things like that. But, but I remember years ago reading through some of these biographies, and I, I remember particularly reading a, a biography by a man named Arnold Dallimore on C.H. Uh, Spurgeon. And I remember when I finished reading the biography on Spurgeon, I thought to myself, you know, this could have been a biography on Pastor Chuck Smith. Because there were so many similarities between what God did with Spurgeon in his day and what was happening in our day, uh, you know, back, back in those times with Pastor Chuck. And then I read a biography on a man named A.B. Simpson. And A.B. Simpson uh, ended up being the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance churches. And I walked away from that biography thinking the same thing. I just read the biography of Calvary Chapel. And it just showed me that, of course, God works, because it's the same God, he works in similar ways with different groups of people. And so here we are today and we look around and we look at Calvary Chapel and we think, well, you know, praise the Lord that God is working amongst us as a family of churches. But if we're to for a minute think that, you know, we're kind of, you know, the only ones, which I don't think anybody's thinking that, but, you know, if we kind of think that somehow we're the best ones, well, we're just not thinking clearly because that's not the case. God's got all different kinds of things going on all around the world. And he's meeting people right where they're at. And for some people, they're more emotionally inclined. He's meeting them with a, uh, that's, that's the, the presentation is coming through that. And for others who are more stoic, he's meeting them with the, the kind of thing that uh, Dr. Wildersmith preferred. And so, you know, each one of these manifestations, it's not that one's better than the other. The diversity is intended by God to reach as many people as he can. So we need to appreciate that and we need to just remember that in the end, these great works of God are are best explained not by the men involved in them, but by the God who is orchestrating them. That's the best explanation. It's just something God decided to do. And so let's never forget 
that equality is a truth of the gospel. And we're all in this together and we're all equally loved by God. We're all equally called to serve the Lord in the various capacities. And the sooner we get that in our heads, the better it's going to be for unity. You see, again, I wanna say this, the Jerusalem spirit fostered division destroyed unity and caused contention. We, we just need to stay away from that. And we need to just recognize, man, God's doing a work and wherever I see the Lord working, I wanna just say, thank you, Lord, for what you're doing over there. You're doing it differently than we do it, but you know what, you're doing it. It's undeniable. People are getting saved. The lives are being transformed. Thank you, Jesus. So that's, that's a way that I think this passage here has application to us as a congregation. And so let's not forget that. We are all equally dead in our trespasses and sins by nature. Can anyone be more dead than anyone else? <laughs> you know, when you're dead, you're dead. That's, it just stops there, right? And that's where we all were dead in our trespasses and sins, every one of us, all equally dead, but we're all equally brought to life through faith in Christ, and we stand in the presence of God on level ground. That's a beautiful thing, and that's what we need to live out amongst ourselves, and that's what we are to project to the world as a witness. So Lord, help us in our day to just know that equality is a truth of the gospel. And help us, Lord, not so much to fight for it as to live it. And as we live it, we will inevitably fight for it with our lives. And so may that be true for us personally and may it be true for us collectively as your people, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's stand together.